I hate kids and pets. They're all a royal pain in the butt. Howdy, Cowboys. How y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Steve Cuff. And I'm Colin Tanner, and every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, this is our second episode, and let me tell you, the response to the very first episode has just been, well, it's been nothing, because I hate to break it to you, we're recording these in advance. Ugh. But I imagine it's wonderful. I imagine people are sending us all sorts of gift baskets full of uh, fresh fruit and things like that. And let me just say thank you in advance. Steve, what did you get? I mean, really all I've gotten are nude pictures via email. And um, I, I just want to say, you know, while I appreciate your fandom, uh, I, I, I don't need that. You got to share them if they were for the podcast. That's true. Real quick, I do want to give a shout out. Uh, we use lots of references for this show. And for the very first episode, there was a website called artofthetitle.com. They give us a bunch of really good ideas when we were talking about Tank. I want to make sure that they get uh, the credit that they deserve. So artofthetitle.com, thank you very much. And today we're going to be talking about episode two, I'm sorry, session two, Stray Dog Strut. But before every episode, we like to talk a little bit about Bebop history. And today we're going to be talking about the creator of Cowboy Bebop. Can you believe it, Steve? We went the entire first episode, talked about all these people, and didn't talk about the creator of Cowboy Bebop? I can't believe that's just entirely your fault. It is. It was uh, all my bad. But his name, or her name, is Hajime Yate, who in fact doesn't even exist. Dum dum dum. Steve, when I say Studio Ghibli, what's the very first thing that comes to mind? Miyazaki. Miyazaki, exactly. Whenever you start a brand new studio, you need a person, a person that's going to be the face of the company, that's going to put faith into the company and their future projects. Well, Hajime Yate is that for Sunrise Animation, and he's been involved with a ton of different projects. All the way back in 1978, he was involved in Mu Tenki, Kojin, Day 10-3, and recently, he's been working on 2017's mobile suit Gundam, Iron-Blooded Orphans. That's the most anime name ever. The orphans have a lot of iron in their blood. <laughs> and this nebulous name was really the core idea of Sunrise when it was founded back in 1972. It was meant to represent a collection of artists because back in the day, like we were talking about, you need somebody to step in front of the company, be the face of the company. Now, all of the people that started Sunrise, they were previously working at Mushin Productions, which was founded by Osama Tezuka, who did Astro Boy. You might remember Astro Boy from uh, last episode. So those who were working on Astro Boy, they said... Come on, let's go do our own thing. They went and started Sunrise, and then they created the moniker Hajime Yate. Now, to be honest, the first few years of Sunrise are not <laughs> particularly good. Lots of super robot shows, children's comedies, and shows about the French Revolution. I'm not making that up. But in 1979, they struck gold with the monster hit Mobile Suit Gundam. Steve, have you ever heard of Mobile Suit Gundam? I have. It's got big robots. <laughs> that's that's a good start. That's right. And uh, in, in case you're new to the show and you didn't listen to the first episode, I am the anime expert here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know everything about anime. But Mobile Suit Gundam, in case you don't know, it took the giant robo concept and it made it far more political. It's actually about um, the colonies in space versus Earth. And it's kind of like the American Revolution. I don't know what it is about revolutions that uh, Sunrise was so drawn to, but they did something about the French Revolution. And then they did this next thing about space with robots, which is automatically better. Get the civilians onto white base. Yes, sir. I don't think any more oxygen is escaping, sir. In the transfer of the Gundam? Most of the engineers were lost in the attack, so it's unlikely we'll be able to. That pilot will have to do it. Huh? We're gonna need his help, whoever's inside that mobile suit. He's the only chance we've got right now. And you know who created Mobile Suit Gundam? Hajime 
Yate. Uh Well, it's actually the creator, Yoshiyuki Tomino. But ever since then, if you were to ask whose studio Sunrise belongs to, who is the creator? Who is the person in charge of this company? Well, actually, it's a lot of people, but they all band together to make Hajime Yate. And also, apparently, that's a reference to the Japanese poem, Oko no Hosomichi. And the quote is, this was the first time I used my travel writing implements, and I was still reluctant to venture further. Good to know. That's some real lyrical poetry there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get into it. Episode two, Stray Dog Strut. It was directed by Ikaro Sato, who goes on to direct six more episodes in Bebop, and it was written by Michiko Yokoti, who wrote a total of eight episodes for Bebop. So it aired on TV Tokyo on April 3rd, 1998, and it aired on Wow Wow on October 31st, 1998. And it aired on September 2nd, 2001 on Adult Swim, and we didn't mention this last episode, but two episodes would air on Adult Swim every single uh, Sunday night. And this was the premiere night for Adult Swim, so they had a lot of faith on Bebop. They made sure to air two episodes to really get people hooked. And it's worth noting, this is the debut of TV Tokyo and Cowboy Bebop. They didn't air the first episode. This is the very first episode that ever aired. Apparently, this episode was promoted on a live TV talk show the day the series premiered. According to a Japanese voice actor, the clips likely confused the audience. At one point, it looked like the dog was the main character is what he kept saying. <laughs> Can you imagine? You don't, you don't even see this, this show. You just see that clip and you're like, oh, that Cowboy Bebop, the dog show, sounds badass. Oh, man, but I work around then. Can't watch it. Too bad. And you go this full year without seeing it, and then finally you get those DVDs because you want to watch the dog show. And the first episode is just people with their heads getting blown off and shit. I mean, if, if it was a show about a precocious little dog running around a city, uh, I'd be okay with that. Absolutely. I, okay, let's actually talk about this right now. Do you think this was a good idea, starting uh, Cowboy Bebop with this episode rather than the first episode? I think it depends on how you want to frame the show for your viewers. So like like we talked about on our first episode, the first episode of Cowboy Bebop is uh, it's very stylistically intense and there's a lot of violence and there's some serious gore. And in a lot of ways, the second episode, it feels like a tamer, more streamlined version of that first episode. I definitely feel like they've reduced the complex feelings and instead just had it be fun. This is fun. Look at all these people running around. There's a silly dog. And of course, we do have to talk about it. The title is actually named after something. Steve, do you want to explain what the Stray Cats were? The Stray Cats were a rockabilly band in the early 1980s, headed up by Brian Setzer, who had more hits in the 90s with the Brian Setzer Orchestra. Like a Gap commercial, I think, had one of his jump and jive and... Jump, jive, and whale, man. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, Yeah, so if you're a real hip cat or a cool daddy, then you probably got down with the Stray Cats. And their number one hit was the titular track, The Stray Cat Strut. Which, of course, is now The Stray Dog Strut. And you'll be hearing it at every single Hard Rock Cafe across the country every 10 minutes. This was actually a really big scene for a moment. This is kind of like where mods came from in the 80s. The idea of kind of like dressing that kind of 50s style. They were at the forefront of that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, they were pretty much the premier uh, rockabilly band of the 80s, more or less. And it wasn't really, I mean, there were other rockabilly bands, but it wasn't really a big thing. So, you know, they were king of shit mountain. Uh, (laughs) But it was, there was a rockabilly revival. And then when Brian Setzer came back in the 90s, there was kind of like a, a swing big band revival. And he was able to infuse a lot of his shitty rockabilly music into shitty swing music. So you had the Brian Setzer Orchestra and you had the Cherry Poppin' Daddies and other bands that uh, I don't care about. Didn't he literally take songs from the the Stray Cats and just adapt them into the Brian Setzer Orchestra? Because I could swear, when I tried Googling some of these songs, they had one that was the orchestra and one that was the original from the 80s, which is like, 
That's a double dipping, man. That's ice cold. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know a lot about this band in particular, just because I don't know if you can tell, but my feelings on them are a little mm, lukewarm. So, yeah. I think if you want to get into, like, Garage Rock and Rockabilly Revival, they might be the worst band to actually get into. Sure. Watch, we're going to have, like, militant Stray Cat fans, like, emailing us now. If you want some good Rockabilly, listen to the Cramps. They are awesome. They are dirty. They are grimy. They are everything that they couldn't be in the 50s, just infusing that 80s, like, fuck everything style. I love the Cramps. All right, let's start off the episode here. We uh, see a tall man with an afro and a bandaged face in a dirty bathroom stall. I love that so far we've had two episodes and they both involve bathrooms so far. Yeah, that is kind of weird. And it kind of it kind of goes back to the idea that this really does resemble, like even down to minute pointless details, this, this episode really resembles the first one a lot. Do you think they might have like tried to reuse some of the assets? Just be like, oh, just copy this again. I wouldn't be surprised. But let's talk about, that's some economic storytelling. You see that there's a briefcase that is moving. There's something mysterious in there. You see someone removing bandages from their face, and they're in this grimy location. You already know they're hiding. First three seconds, economic storytelling. Bam, you know everything that's going on. Yep. Uh, A gang of armed scientists, yes, that's really a sentence, uh, (laughs) charge into the bathroom with their guns pointed, demand that Abdul Hakim surrender. That's going to be our, uh, our enemy for the episode. He uh, bears the same name as many historical figures, including a 17th century Portuguese empire poet. But instead of being a poet, he uh, kicks the door down and just beats up on these guards. We don't actually see any of the violence. We just see them stumble over. We don't see the, um, we we see that one guy get kicked in the shin. Yeah, which uh, again, that's, it's such a big departure from the abrupt visceral violence of the first episode. Like this is the fact that it's all taking place sort of off screen is interesting. We'll be talking about that later on because that's something they keep repeating here. They don't show you the violence. One of the bits of graffiti in the background says Father Faker. And I Google this because I'm like, Father Faker, what does that mean? Nothing came up except for a t-shirt that you could buy at Amazon.com that just said Father Faker. I clicked on it. It said, sorry, we couldn't find that. And it had a picture of a Welsh Corgi. I'm telling you, it was it was planned all the way back in 1998. He knew what was going to happen here. We once again get a look at the Gateway space travel system. And I want to bring this up really quick. If you're like, why aren't you talking about... Uh, certain uh, attributes of the series. Why aren't you talking about the voice actors? Trust me, everyone's going to get their time in the history segment, and we're also going to explain a lot of Bebop lore in future episodes. So we're not going to explain the gateway system yet. We'll explain that on episode four, I think. But we get another shot of the gateway space system, and we finally get to see what television looks like in 2071. Hi, amigos! All 300,000 bounty hunters in the star system! How y'all doing? And now it's time for Big Shots, the show that tells all Chucks howdy! Of course today is this hombre, Abdul Hakim, a notorious serial pet thief. Steve, how would you describe Big Shot? Um, well, it's, uh, <laughs> it, it's something. It sure is something. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if I have the words to accurately describe it. Do you think that you could do that today here in America? Just have a television show? It's like, oh, here's the bounties for today. Yeah. Hey, it's me, vaguely Italian sort of racist cowboy. And me, booby girl. I do want to get this clear because Mary Elizabeth uh, McGillan, I believe is how you pronounce her name. She actually did all the voice directing, the ADR directing for the show. And she made sure mm-hmm. that uh, Punch did not sound consistent. He, She wanted the accent to just go all over the place. and it's, make him, Yeah. He's a terrible actor. Like, if they were good actors, they wouldn't be doing this weird show. No, it, it's great. And then uh, the woman, she just... Uh, it, You know, I don't know if it's supposed to be titillating or if it's supposed to be just like, it's very unnerving. Like, anatomically, I don't know how anything is working on that person. I feel like there's a lot of tape involved. A lot of tape, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how those things stay put, but, you know, good on her. 
Good job, anime girl. I do like the fact that you don't see like the protagonist being like, oh, I like this girl or anything like that. This is just normal. They're just yeah. like, eh, whatever. Yeah, whatever. This is also where we learn that there are 300,000 bounty hunters across the galaxy. Because that's what they say in the beginning. Hello to all 300,000. Uh, the show is hosted by Punch, as we mentioned, and a woman named Judy, which, of course, is a reference to the 17th century British puppet show uh, where the characters would routinely end up physically fighting. I suppose you could say they're like a precursor to Tom and Jerry. Yeah, pretty much. Early, early slapstick. Really early slapstick. <laughs> do they still do that in England, the Punch and Judy show? Or is that just kind of like having a train expo? I mean, I don't know a lot about England, but I assume that everyone drinks tea and then has uh, fanciful puppet shows where they punch each other. So, yes. And then the bobbies come down. Yeah. Enough of that. No mischief here. <laughs> the show is then interrupted by the doctor calling. So this is the very first time we're ever going to see the doctor. I oh, mean, Dr. Wiley. Yeah, seriously, mm. didn't he look like Dr. Wiley? Yeah. Hey. Yo, Doc, you got something? Yeah, on Abdul Hakim. I'll take it. 300 oolongs, that's a discount. I've got his face post-plastic surgery. I'm low on cash, Doc. <laughs> All right, 280. I have great news for you. Do you like this character? Uh, I, I do, just because I was just like, this is... It, it, look, if you don't know who Dr. Wiley is, he's the villain in Mega Man, but... Watch this episode and then Google Dr. Wiley and you will be amazed. Well, I have great news. He is never brought back. I have oh. no idea who this character seems like he's really important because even Spike's like, oh, Doc, so glad to hear from you. I'm thinking it's like a back to the future type, you know, relationship. Yeah. I, I assume that he would make an appearance in future episodes as like an informant for them or something. Nope. Never again. He's gone. There's no reference to him. I have no idea who he is. Hmm. But he says that he knows what Hakeem's face looks like. Because we see Hakeem in the beginning of the show. He's like, he looks like Eminem almost. Yeah. And then they basically turn him into, well, we'll tell you what they turn him into later they, on. They turn him into Slim Shady. <laughs> He's back. He's back. We see Bebop entering the Mars colony, which basically looks like a PNG image being dragged from left to right. It is nightmarish. It does not look good. It looks so much Baron Stare definition. Also, the doc gave up uh, the location and uh, the guy's face for 300 Wulongs. How much is a Wulong worth? Because Hakeem is worth 8 million Wulongs. And he's like, oh, I don't have 300. And he's like, all right, Spike, I'll give it to you for 280. What? And I and the dog's only worth two Wulongs. Two Wulongs. Oh, I love that. Which he's an adorable dog. I think adorable dogs should be more than two Wulongs. We're going to play that audio clip. Not now. We'll do it later because, God, I love that. I love that so much. This is our very first look at Mars. We see a lot of Chinese written text and even a traditional uh, dragon because that's where uh, Hakim is hanging out. Uh, really selling the idea that humans didn't leave language and culture behind. They brought it all with them. This is a clash of culture. And of course, you're going to have Chinatowns just like we have Chinatowns in the world right now, just like they have them in Japan, actually, and America, all over the world. Now, one of the trivia sites I visited mentioned that the Chinese text is from different languages like Mandarin. So it's not consistent Chinese. This mm -hmm. really is an adaptation of, of modern day uh, China as we know it. Let's talk about Hakeem's height for a second. I love the camera angles here because he you see him not even able to enter the shop without ducking. He has to duck to go underneath the doorway. Yeah, he's like 10 feet tall. Like, I don't even know. <laughs> We're going to talk about it in a second because he grabs that guy. And I paused it because I'm like, how the fuck is his hand bigger than that guy's head? Yeah, his, his hand is the size of my torso. He's like Andre the Giant if Andre the Giant was rail thin. He does look like a basketball player, a very specific basketball player we'll talk about in a moment. Here's something really interesting. This whole tea shop scene, the barista is like offering a bunch of different drinks. And then he finishes the sentences with, uh, hey, soy. You feel run down, have some ginseng, hey, soy. It will keep you up for a week. Out of where? Or try sugar cane, hey, soy. Ate too much, have pineapple, hey, soy. 
Give me some Lao Chu. He's like, oh, you want some ginseng hei soy? And I thought that was like a variety of tea, but I think hei soy is just like a nickname. I can't find anything on it. Hmm. You Google it, it just takes you right back to this scene, unless the subtitles are wrong. And you want to hear something kind of crazy here? When he says, eat too much, uh, drink pineapple hei soy, I have followed that, and it is true. There's so much acid in it, it actually paralyzes your stomach nerve endings so it can't feel it anymore, and the acid also breaks down the food faster. Oh, fun fact. Hakeem orders a Lao Chu which is also fictional. I don't even know what that could possibly be. Uh, and this guy bumps into him. Hakeem is not a fan of this guy instantly, smashes a cockroach, throws it in the drink, and forces this man to down the whole thing, including the bug. And while he's distracted, some dude makes off with a briefcase. <laughs> I love it so much. It's so, I just love how it, it's teaching you about how, like, don't miss with Hakeem, but we're going to get this plot moving. You know, they don't want to just stay in one spot. This whole episode's about chasing. I love how the guy jumps in the back of the truck and he opens it up and you just see that first person perspective. Now, Steve, you are new to Cowboy Bebop. Did you know what it was going to be? Oh, I, I thought it was going to be a situation like Pulp Fiction where everybody was just going to look at it and be like, ooh. Oh, that's really interesting. You know what? <laughs> Wait a minute. Maybe we should talk about that for a second because, of course, Pulp Fiction was released in 1994. This was in a production by 96, I want to say. Do you think maybe this whole chasing the briefcase around is a reference to Pulp Fiction? I don't know. I mean, the Pulp Fiction, fiction reference in and of itself is it's just kind of a play on the, you know, what's in the briefcase trope. So... Uh, if anything, I think it's it's just playing around with a, a conventional like thriller trope thing. The the briefcase full of money, the briefcase full of oh the secret formula or whatever. Uh, but in this case, there's a cute puppy in it. <laughs> I have to say that the next week's episode they try the exact same thing, except it's a it's an object instead of a dog. Not nearly as successful. I love this dog. Can I just say for a second, there are some incredible sound effects in this episode when Hakeem kicks doors down because you hear the kick, you hear the wood hitting the ground, and you hear the glass shattering. And it feels like it's one-to-one, -one. and especially when he can't uh, find the guy and he punches that hanging piece of meat. It's a great sound effect. Unfortunately for that thief, it is a live animal and a great use of first-person perspective. He's such a wimp. Uh, Spike takes off in his swordfish, too, as we're introduced to some of the best incidental characters in the entire series. Two scientists driving around, one announcing exposition, <laughs> while the other just says, seems that way. In, like, the most wooden voice ever. And this is one of those situations, too, where... You know, the, the ADR work, the overdubs or whatever, uh, sometimes they sound cheap and you're like, Ugh. but in, in this instance, it actually works really well. Like it adds to these characters because this is an episode where it feels like, I don't know, if the first episode cost $100,000, which I'm just throwing that out there, this one feels like it, co it costs like $20,000. <laughs> like there's some corners being cut and these guys are great because they just have the the goofy, almost non-professional voice actor voices. And on top of that, uh, Kyle and I were talking before the show and I told him that one of my favorite things was uh, these guys don't blink. <laughs> and, and most of the time, if you if you look at them, like when one of them isn't talking, like it's clearly just a static image. Uh, now, can you remember, I can't off the top of my head, do we even really see the street? I feel like we just see the car and they, they put the camera really close up so we're not actually seeing what they're driving past and they're putting things in the windshield. 
That's really clever. I did not notice that the first time. Yeah, it's it's pretty close crop. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, every episode, I think it's they said two hundred thousand uh, dollars. I'm not sure though. I'm sure that fluctuates from episode to episode. Take a couple zeros off for this one. <laughs> but I just love that it would basically, if someone were to walk into a, a, this room right now and had no idea what we were doing, and it would just be like, we're recording a podcast about Cowboy Bebop. Seems that way. That old anime seems that way. <laughs> like, just <laughs> exposition, just explaining everything that's going on. Uh, Spike stops by a pawn shop to find a shady pet shop and enjoys a pair of Way of the Dragon long chain nunchucks, which were made in the uh, 30s, presumably the 2030s, because I've Googled it. These don't exist. Long chain Way of the Dragon style. That's just made up. That is, you cannot buy those. I mean, you could, but they would be like $50 and really cheap on eBay. They're crap. If you want good nunchucks, you have to spend way more. I I like how this sets you up as one of those guys who just like Googles nunchucks all day. I used to use nunchucks a lot. I I was pretty good at it. I mean, you start with the foam ones, yeah, and then you have to do the you practice everything. I think you've reached peak anime fan now that you've you've learned how to use nunchucks. I, I, I don't do it anymore. While you were having premarital sex, Colin mastered the blade. Something like that. Wantanabe has said that Enter the Dragon is one of his favorite films of all time. Not Way of the Dragon, which is what Spike's talking about. Uh, Way of the Dragon, great movie. Enter the Dragon, great movie. But Steve. Can we talk for a moment about how Bruce Lee is one of those people that's idolized? And I don't think people quite go back and watch those movies as much because his early stuff when he's not like directing, directing and involved, Mm -hmm. real bad. Like yeah. really slow. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, par for the course. I'm more of a Shaw Brothers guy myself. But. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can really tell that uh, the creator's a big fan of, of Bruce Lee movies. And uh, one of the ways is Hakeem, the villain. I think a lot of people assume, oh, he's a tall, lanky black man. His name's Hakeem. So it's like, oh, Hakeem Abdul-Jabbar. But when I first saw him, all I could think of was like, damn, he looks like Jim Kelly. So <laughs> Jim Kelly was kind of famous in the 1970s, uh, very tall, big, muscular dude uh, with a big afro. And he was known for black exploitation films. But what he was best known for was he uh, starred alongside Bruce Lee and Enter the Dragon. It is defeat that you must learn to prepare for. I don't waste my time with it. When it comes, I won't even notice. Oh, how so? I'll be too busy looking good. You will tell me who else. Mr. Han, suddenly I'd like to leave your island. It is not possible. Bullshit, Mr. Handman. Man, you come right out of a comic book. And I I really think like Hakeem looks like Jim Kelly in Enter the Dragon. Yeah, I think if you go back and you watch Game of Death for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, I don't think you're going to quite see the resemblance. But this guy, like you said, is Jim Kelly. Uh, when, when was that? 1973? Somewhere around there? Somewhere around there, sure. But uh, Bruce Lee only made, what was it, five, six movies? And then he was he was dead, like really, really quick. So when people are like, oh, I love Bruce Lee. I've seen all his movies. It's like, it's not a huge accomplishment. There are more movies with Iron Man in the movie than there are with Bruce Lee in the movie. How fucked up is that? Mm -hmm. But we did get all the fake Bruce Lee movies. Oh, God. Do you want to talk about that for a second? Yeah. There's actually, uh, so there's this whole like subgenre of kung fu films where it was basically people just pretending to be Bruce Lee, even though they weren't Bruce Lee. So like they'd spell his name like Bruce and then instead of L-E-E, it'd be like L-I, ha-ha. Bruce Lee's untimely death shocked the entire world. In Exit the Dragon, Enter the Tiger, Lee names his successor, introducing a new star, Bruce Lai. I'll have to find out if there was some foul play and if there was, I'll avenge, I'll avenge, forgive you. You people killed Bruce Lee? 
I don't know, but I didn't. If you've lied to me, I'll come back and kill you! And there's actually, there's a really great one, and the name escapes me right now because it's so stupid and generic, but it's about, like, Bruce Lee, and he dies, and he goes to hell, and he fights another Bruce Lee. No, it's Game of Death 2, or whatever, not Game of Death. I, I know which one you're talking about because it's like, there's blood in the water everywhere, right? Yeah, it's it's real stupid, but it's like, it's some, like, Shaw Brothers, Godfrey Ho, like, just Z-grade cinema, and for some reason, this persisted for a very long time. And then even on into more mainstream movies, so in the 1980s, uh, there's a, a movie called No Retreat, No Surrender. Uh, it's, it's got, I think it's got Jean-Claude Van Damme in it. Yeah, it does. He's the villain. Oh, God. And in this movie, Jean-Claude Van Damme is this like villainous karate man, and there's this kid. He wants to be like a karate master and kick Jean-Claude Van Damme's ass, but he he trains, and he's trained by the ghost of Bruce Lee. No, <laughs> yes, no, it's totally a thing. No, don't do it's that. Just a, it's just like for no reason. Just no. that's the plot point. That's and, me, yeah. that's mean. That's really mean. It's kind of it's it's weird. But like he pays reverence to him. Like he goes to Bruce Lee's grave, and then that's like, and Bruce Lee is like, "Thank you for visiting my grave. I'll now teach you karate." It's it's really fucking weird, man. They called it Bruce Ploitation. Uh, it's impossible to remember the names of all these because they all have the same stupid names. It's just like. Dragon, Death, Enter the... Like, they just... It's like they take all of Bruce Lee's film titles and they, they cut them up and then they mix them up in a hat and then they just pick out random words and that's the name of your Bruce Ploitation film. Way of the Enter. Yeah, Way of the Enter. Hmm. <laughs> uh, we'll actually be talking more about Bruce Lee in a future episode because, uh, well, it'll come up. Anyway, the Mohawk clerk is so impressed by Spike doing two reverse rotations with nunchucks. Just, that's all. All he had to do was just do it twice. He just goes, oh, okay, here's the pet shop. <laughs> Uh, we return to our thief attempting to sell the case to an eccentric pet shop owner. By the way, the voice actor for this pet shop opener just... Ugh. Yeah, no, she sounds like Mrs. Doubtfire. Spike actually surprises the guy, just asks him to talk for a moment, and then just points a gun right at his head and is just like, you're Hakeem, you took more plastic surgery, I recognize the briefcase. I love that plot device, but does he not consider the fact that this guy is significantly shorter than Hakeem? Of course, finally, the pet shop owner opens up the case and... Now both of you stop this funny business. My babies are very sensitive, please. Open the case. Why me? This is a misunderstanding. Do it. Ah! A Welsh corgi. They're very sweet, but you see them everywhere. I'm afraid they're hardly a rare breed. Well, how much is it worth? I mean... You could sell him for about two. Two hundred? No, no, two woolongs. No way! Yes way, and if you don't like it, take him back. Eat the poor thing. Can we talk for a moment about Ein the Dog, just his design? Adorable. The best. Yeah, and it, it emphasizes all the things that are amazing about corgis. So he's stumpy, he's got a cute little face, and he's got a little floofy butt. Have you ever actually to deal with a corgi for an extended period of time? Yeah, corgis rule. It depends, man. Sometimes they try and guide you. Because they're guide dogs, and they just go after your, your ankles and try and push you. It's obnoxious. <laughs> so you might be saying, what's up with Welsh corgis? Why are they so popular? Well, actually, uh, Princess Elizabeth, you know, she was British royalty. I mean, she still is. She's still alive as of this recording. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's, that's pretty grim, man. She was such a fan of Welsh corgis that on her 18th birthday, she was given one of them. Uh, the dog was named Susan, and since then, Queen Elizabeth has overseen the breeding of 10 generations of corgis related to Susan. That sounds pretty gross, but trust me, it's not. She just stands there with her arms crossed and her crown on. She's like, hell yeah. 
I want these corgis to fuck so I can have more corgis. <laughs> the head of series composition, Kikito Nobumoto, actually campaigned Wananabe to add a dog in the series and said, it has to be a corgi. On all these interviews, she's like, yep, that was one of the only things I said. You have to have a corgi in this show. That seems like a fair request. And so Spike assumes incidents are unrelated and he leaves, missing Hakeem by a split second because he steps in a puddle of water. Hakeem walks to the pet shop. I just love this, that he shows up, he points a gun at the guy, and even the pet shop is like, why does this keep happening? Like, imagine you're this pet shop woman. You have no idea what's even going on because it's a Welsh Corgi. It's worth $2. Or yeah. Two Wulong. Two Wulong. Big difference, yeah. Huge difference. What am I talking about? This is Wulong Club. And the dog is smart enough to realize not to go near Hakeem, instead attacks him. Hakeem fires off a shot that sends animals running out of the shop, including... Possibly a deer, a toucan, maybe a Canadian lynx, a chimpanzee, a full-grown ostrich, a horned owl, a Diana monkey. I googled a lot of this. I say, how do you know, what's the difference between a lynx and a Canadian lynx? Uh, it was just the way that it was drawn. Like, there was, there, was, there was the color as well, the way that these were colored, and also the eyes. Uh, same thing with the Diana I, I was monkey. I was really setting you up for a Canada joke there, Colin. Come on. <laughs> oh, come on. And a bunch of birds. We don't get to see all the birds. And of course, the Welsh Corgi makes his way out of the shop as well, gathering the attention of the scientists, Spike and Hakeem, as they all give chase. Uh, this is where the song plays, Want It Back, which I will say, if this song existed, uh, well, I mean, of course it existed, but if this song was taken and put on the radio at the exact same time that Amy Winehouse was doing her thing, this would have been a hit. This song is amazing. It's so good. Wait, I, I need to clarify. Is this the is this the song with like the funky bass line? Because all I could think of was just like, this sounds like Primus with a lady. <laughs> is that right? Yes, that was my thought. I do like Primus as well. Lady Primus. <laughs> Uh, this is sung by Mei Yamane. She's had a long career in Japanese music. In fact, let's give a listen to her 1980 song, Tosagari. That sounds like everything you've heard in Star Search. Just really schmarmy. Want It Back, however, is a great song, and it tells the story of a spurned lover whose ex happily spent her money, and now she wants it all back. I love the hard cuts to each participant in the chase. You see a long shot that really communicates order. Hakeem is running after the dog, followed by the truck with the two scientists, and then we see Spike. So no matter how chaotic it's going to get, and it's going to get chaotic, we know the order of this, and they're going to repeat this joke over and over again. Missed opportunity to use the Benny Hill theme, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, we can put this in uh, Adobe Premiere and fix that right away. <laughs> Spike outpaces the scientist while Hakeem causes a two-car collision and then eventually just resorts to throwing apples, oranges, and pineapples at the dog. I don't know how he did this because you see him like throwing individual fruits and it cuts the iron running away. It just looks like he dumped the basket on top of him. We see an ongoing game of uh, something. It looks like a board game. I tried Googling this. I could not figure it out. It looks like checkers, but with like green and red pieces and they're really big. Kind of like what you see at the Cracker Barrel with like the, big, the big checkers. Hell yeah, Cracker Barrel checkers. If you're not playing checkers on a giant board that's made out of a quilt, then uh, <laughs> you're doing it wrong. They still use those, don't they? Mm-hmm. Anyway, the game is interrupted as the dog runs under the table, Hakeem jumps over the table, Spike runs through the table, and the scientists are stopped because all the people that are watching the game are just like, don't you dare, don't you dare try it. I love that. They just set up that joke so perfectly. Finally, Hakeem and Spike meet face to face, and uh, as we were just talking about, the exact fight that's taking place here is reminiscent to Game of Death and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. 
kind of a bad movie, but it has really good scenes in it because Bruce Lee was dead and they tried fixing it and they totally screwed up everything. Have you seen the uh, AMC correct order version of the final sequence of Game of Death? No. Oh my God, it's so good. He just goes up this tower and keeps fighting different people. And some people have blades, some people have different weapons. And then finally at the very top, it's this big dude who's, uh, he can't see light. Light actually affects his eyesight. So he has to punch through the holes and make sure he goes blind. It's amazing. So here we are, you know, in, in Game of Death, it's an amazing fight scene. So what do they do here? They finally are on top of that bridge. They're about to punch each other. And instead the camera just cuts to the dog going to sleep. Once again, we don't see the action. It just goes to the dog sleeping. I love that. Yeah. So by the way, the Spike comments that the dog's only worth a fistful of Wulong. So he's kind of paraphrasing the title of the 1964 Sergio Leone Clint Eastwood movie, Fistful of Dollars. And uh, that was part of the trilogy with uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly and for a few dollars more or for a few Wulongs more in this case. The Man With No Name trilogy with Clint Eastwood. I've only seen two of those movies, but apparently they're really good. Of course, Ayn realizes that this is just plain trouble. He jumps off the bridge and there's this sound effect when he's trying to land on the boat that's like I just I love it it's so good and uh, Hakeem ends up on the boat Spike falls in the water with Ayn yeah because Ayn like like spears him midair it's awesome Uh, we see an establishing shot of the bebop uh, which is on the water and if you look in the background there's a poster for a guy named Bruce Liu L-O-O it's a shirtless skinny muscular guy with black hair and black pants so I think they're getting on this Bruce Bloitation even in 2071. Oh, yeah. Back on the Bebop, Jet gives the dog a collar and uh, starts calling him Ayn. Oh, maybe he doesn't call him Ayn just yet, but that's the name of the dog and how we're going to be referring to him. We get one of our only curse words in the entire series when Spike just yells shit when he finds out that the dog is worth nothing and he's not sure why he wasted all of his time. And of course, one of my favorite scenes when he points right at Ayn and Ayn just bites his finger. Why do they name the dog Ayn? Is that short for Einstein? Oh, yes. Actually, I've heard that uh, theory before. Also, it means one in German, but I think your idea is far, far better. By the way, the voice of the dog is a real dog named Jack, who was owned by the producer Kazuhiko Ikaguchi. Jack was a cardigan Welsh corgi, and he provided all the voices for uh, Ein. Of course, the dog in the show is a Pembroke Welsh corgi. Huge difference. I don't know. I think we need better Pembroke Welsh corgi representation. I, I find it upsetting that they would have a different kind of corgi do his voice. Uh, Spike then leaves to go look for Hakeem some more and we hear a conversation where we learn that Spike's grandmother died before he was born. Good to know. And a conversation where Hakeem learns his plans to sell Ayn have fallen through. He smashes his flip phone in anger. All right, let's tackle it. What happened to smartphones in 2071? Dude, what's old is new again. This is, it's retro chic. Like, like, give me, let's let's actually, let's hammer this out for just a moment. What could be the in-universe reason why they don't have smartphones in the future. Uh, there's a lack of touch screen resources. Ooh, maybe that is, maybe they need that to make the um, the bubbles so that they can breathe oxygen on certain planets. There you go. Boom. That's it. That's canon. I've been thinking about this a lot and thinking maybe they don't quite have the internet either because Wi-Fi like broadcasting out to different planets would just take too long. So that's mm-hmm. why they're still watching television maybe, but I don't know. Does that mean that if you're on a different planet and you see an episode of Big Shot, it could be like five weeks old? Yeah. Well, how is Big Shot's, like, how is anything being brought? See, now we, we've opened a can of worms. He smashes the flip phone and we don't talk about it. <laughs> flip phones are cool. <laughs> there you go. It's a Moto Razor. Desperate for any hints, Hakeem resorts to a blind fortune teller and his bird. This is actually more common than you think. With operations in Mexico, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Bird fortune tellers. Who knew? (laughs) Over in the truck, one of the scientists, also desperate, decides to use the dog whistle. Rather than seems this way, the other scientist is freaked out. That's how we know this is a big deal. And so they switch this thing on, and the guy just says, Is it on? I can't hear it. It's too high pitched. Only animals can pick it up. I knew that. 
I was testing you. Every dog in a four block radius dashes towards the truck as the fortune teller correctly predicts what Hakeem is looking for is right behind him. And once again, we have another chase. This is just a show about chasing people. This chase rocks too. Like I love the when when they're firing off the net at the dogs. <laughs> yeah. I love the the newlyweds. They're so happy. This is the perfect day. Oh God. And Hakeem just punches him in the face. He doesn't need to punch him in the face. He's just like, excuse me, sir. You're taking our car. He just batters him. Uh, the scientists fire a net at the group of trailing dogs, and it gets all of them. It gets every dog except for Ayn. It's so stupid. Hakeem finally grabs Ayn, spraying him with sleeping gas, which made me sad, but it was kind of cute. It was adorable. <laughs> but Spike catches up in the swordfish, too, crushing the roof of the car as they move onto the highway. Here, I want to talk about this for a second. If you watch the very beginning of this episode to the end of this episode, Spike is like, whatever happens, happens. It's all good. Let's go. Okay, I got to get the dog. All right. Sorry about pointing that gun in your face. Whatever, man. He's chill. As this episode progresses, he's just so mad that he's literally slamming his ship on top of a car. Yeah. And then we see the sound. Scientists firing what appears to be pistols, but then when we cut to Hakeem's car, we see machine gun fire. I think that was just an error on their part when they were animating it. Ayn seems completely aware of his situation. He jumps on the steering wheel. He starts pushing all sorts of buttons to make the car open up. Which is also super adorable. <laughs> How adorable is it when he jumps off and gets hit by a pole? Now, the whole thing is great with him. This forces Spike to swing around and catch Ayn on the swordfish too. He looks so cute when he lands on top of there. While the scientists harpoon Hakeem's car as they drive off the freeway and directly into the police parking lot. As we hard cut to a brand new episode of Big Shot, I love that. From the beginning to the end, we see Big Shot and they just sort of uh, open and close each episode, covering the arrest of the scientists and Hakeem and the missing data dog, which is worth a fortune due to it being scientifically engineered. Uh, but sadly, none of the Bebop crew are actually watching the television, so they completely missed this. And you know they're not going to cover it in the news. This data dog is still missing. No one's going to care. And we don't know at this point what a data dog is, right? Like, I didn't miss any explanation. No, not at all. Okay, because I have a theory. What do you got? Um, a data dog is a dog that can breathe through a metal suitcase. Actually, now that you point that out, there were no oxygen holes in there, were there? No. No wonder he was so mad. It was so dark in there. Hope they put a little light for him. I tried to find any source of, about like designing intelligent pets. Nothing exists, but Datadog is a monitoring service for cloud scale applications founded in 2010. Wow, did you did you just give them a free like promo spot here? We doing their commercials? But perhaps they're murderers. So yeah, you never could know. Be. Yeah, there we go. See, that's fair. <laughs> but we cut back to the pet shop, and the owner is scolding that original thief all the way back from the very beginning of the episode. He's mopping up the floors, and then we see the guy who drank the cockroach. He's also going to be cleaning up the floors, and he waves to him. All the characters are back together. A freshly washed Ayn jumps next to Spike, spraying him with water as he shakes his coat. And Jet informs him that they're going to have to deal with the ticks. I believe, and after after he says they have to deal with the ticks, uh, uh, continuing the trend of these guys never eating because they're poor, he's just like, wow, well, why don't you just fry him up and we'll eat him or something like that. Apparently earlier in the episode, the pet shop lady tells them to eat the dog as well. But I think she says feed. I think the subtitles are wrong. Like she says feed the poor thing, not eat the poor thing. But I think people got confused. But I love by the end, they're just like, let's just eat the dog dog. <laughs> Punch and Judy wave goodbye on Big Shot and we see CU Space Cowboy appear on the screen. This is the very first time we've seen it with a black background. Last episode it was the, uh, we saw the Bebop and it said CU Space Cowboy. Now we're coming to the more traditional black background CU Space Cowboy. One of the most iconic things in anime ever. I do wonder if Adult Swim might have taken their idea of having black backgrounds and white text from CU Space Cowboy. Just throwing that out there. Oh, and by the way, Spike did not smoke a single cigarette for this entire episode. Whoa. Do you think he's quitting? I don't think so, man. We're keeping the cigarette counter. I'm just saying, like, he didn't smoke one for the full episode. He's, he's, not, he's got the patch. 
Or maybe he's taking that chantix. Hey, last week I said we were going to talk about the closing theme, so let's do that really, really quick. Uh, it's called The Real Folk Blues, and there's a whole story about that that we'll get to in a future episode. It is once again sung by Mei Yamane, who of course sang Want It Back. She's someone that's obviously very trusted by Yoko Kano. And in this song, she's singing in Japanese, even though she was singing English from Want It Back. She's actually bilingual, and I could not tell that this was even the same person because the language is so different. Mm-hmm. Can I can I say uh, something that will perhaps make people really upset? What do you What do you got? Okay, good. Time to tank this show. One star. He Steve said something bad. Um, I really don't like the end credit song. You don't the show. No, it's so weird. Like it, it for me, the opening theme for Cowboy Bebop is amazing and I, I think it really like it kind of sets the tempo for the show whereas this is just it's so like not cow- like I, I don't hear this song and associate the, the, the music with what the show is. I think I think that's accurate. I think no matter what we hear for the rest of the series nothing is going to sound like this song. I think you're absolutely correct on that. I you know I think this is one of those cases where I've just been around too long and I just I like it. You know, I, I think it's because it slows everything down, you know, and I also like the way the credits look. I'm not going to, let me let me be honest with you, I'm not going to listen to this on its own. That is not what I'm going to do. But if it's at the end of the episode, I like it. I like watching the credits. Oh, by the way, Maya Yamane, who sings the song, of course, she's also the voice of Nicole in the Japanese version of The Amazing World of Gumball. And I'm sure that means something to a 16-year-old. I, I don't know. The whole song is just so weird, though. There's like guitars and horns and... It just, it feels like it's actually slowing tempo as it goes on. It feels like it's getting slower, which I don't know. You're right. Okay. You're not a fan. You're not, you're not, you're giving me, you're shaking your head at me. <laughs> you guys can't see, but I just gave him a knowing glance that he's absolutely wrong. Also, the song apparently is about true sadness and wanting to know what it is and how, I guess, uh, it's not so bad as long as you don't have to return to true sadness later, which I don't know what that means. And of course, it was performed by the seatbelts, who we'll discuss in a future episode. Let's go to Funimation.com and find out what they thought about this episode. They gave it three and a half stars, which is not as good as last week, which had four stars. Same as, oh, no, no, no. It was three and a half stars last week as well. My bad. But on IMDb, we're seeing a drop to a 6.9. Dum, dum, dum. What say you, Steven? Well, we're in the standard deviation for people on IMDb. It's like everything is between a, a 6.9 and a 7.7. That's like when you when you look up a, like a, oh, you're like, oh, this album came out by this band that I like. What what, I, what did Pitchfork give it? Like a 7.2. <laughs> if you say that like nine times out of 10, you're right. Like it's like, oh, yeah, 7.2. I, I don't know. It's weird because for me, at least, this isn't a bad episode. No. It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun. It's brisk. Um, but it, there's not a lot of meat on it. Like yeah. it, it doesn't, I, I find it interesting that this ran as the first episode because it works. Like it's, it's totally self-contained and it's, it's like a very streamlined version of the first episode. So you have the same type of thing where even, even down to the ending, it's just like, oh, and then at the end, uh, the villain <laughs> crashes and it ends up with the cops. And it's, it's very, very similar, although it's, it's not as dark. I don't think it's as thematically rich. It's not as visually interesting. In fact, it kind of looks cheap in certain places. Uh, so, I mean, again, I like this episode, but compared to the first episode, like, dude, not even in the same stratosphere. Wow. Yeah. Okay. This is one of my favorite episodes. I love Stray Dog Strut because it never stops. It just consistently grows and grows and grows. And I'm a big fan of Guy Ritchie movies. You know, Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels, uh, Snatch, and that's pretty much it because the rest of his movies were really bad. I was just about to say, are you a fa- are you a fan of the two good Guy Ritchie movies? Yeah, that's 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 what I'm into. I just I love uh, farce, even though this isn't technically a farce, and I love the idea that all these people are searching for this one thing and nobody gets what they want. Nobody gets what they want, which is kind of like the first episode, but in a much lighter tone. I just love watching Ayn run away. I- 
Think about this for just one minute, how confusing this whole scenario is that Spike is chasing after a guy who's chasing after a dog. He's like, why are you doing this? This doesn't even make any sense. And the scientists are chasing after them and they don't know why they're chasing after each other. I love it. What say you fans? Why don't you tell us? AnimeBroadcastClub at gmail.com. You can email what you thought about the episode. Maybe me and Steve will argue about it. Yeah, but stop sending me those dick pics. Come on. If it's for the podcast, you have to share them. That's true. I just love seeing Spike become like someone that's really calm. He becomes deranged and just, I don't know. It's This is one of those episodes that I can keep watching because like you said, there's so little meat on it. That's why if you're like, why aren't you guys discussing more stuff like you did last week? There's not a lot to discuss here. There, it's pretty straightforward. Dude, are there any dog movies about chasing dogs? Because I couldn't find anything online. Not even in Japan. I was like, dog chasing movies. Nothing came up. I mean, what? Homeward Bound? What, 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 are, we, what are we talking about here? They're not being chased. They're returning to their, their titular home. They can chase after by that, that thing in San Francisco, the trolley car. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the true. sequel. The Longest Journey Home or whatever it's called. Damn, animals keep getting lost. <laughs> Let them die. Is it, you can go get a new cat. Jesus Christ, 4,000 miles. Yeah, but can you get another cat like Sassy, you asshole? Oh, okay, my bad. <laughs> All right, I think we got everything out of the way. Steve, you want to close up this session? Absolutely. So, uh, if you want more episodes of this fabulous show, you can go to OptimismVaccine.com. And on top of that, we also have other podcasts on all kinds of different pop culture topics. And we have some amazing articles, all kinds of stuff just for you. And, uh, hey, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at OptimismVaccine. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just yell at me about my bad anime opinions. uh, At Steve Cuff, that's at Steve C-U-F-F. Colin, where can we find you? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Karate Chop. That's at DR Karate Chop. And you can also go to YouTube.com slash Video Games Are Dumb to check out my video game video content. I know that's a lot of video, but try and keep up. All right, that about wraps things up. So see you, Space Cowboy. The Idiot Tax. What's that? Mindless zombies beholding to cherries and bells. <laughs> is this a riddle? Spending their lives one quarter at a time. Oh, I know what it is. It's a basketball player. Next episode, honky-tonk women. Football player? <laughs>